says I'm on, so I guess I'm on. Uh, <clears throat> okay, we are uh, today. We are starting Genesis chapter forty-seven, and uh, last week we looked uh, we looked at the reunion of Joseph and his father Jacob, and also about Joseph's preparing of the family for their encounter with Pharaoh, which is what we're going to be looking at today, the actual encounter of the family and of Jacob with Pharaoh. <coughs> but uh, So we looked at about the last uh, uh, oh, six or seven verses or so there of chapter 46 last week. Do you remember anything that we talked about last week uh, that sticks in your mind or things you've thought about since then that have come to your mind? Do you know where the land of Goshen was in relation to any of these lands? The land of Goshen, uh, which in our passage today it refers to as the land of Ramses, uh, was apparently kind of in the northeast section of Egypt, okay? Probably on the east side of the Nile River. So it would be, in one sense, that part of Egypt that would be closest to the land of Canaan. So, somewhere in that neighborhood, apparently. Well, if you dread that on left, it said, almost like, be sure to tell them your shepherds and you've taken care of them. But then the last sentence was, with their loads from to the Egyptians. Yeah. Yeah, we did talk about that. What did we say? You were gone. <laughs> Does anybody else remember what we said about that? Okay. Uh, one thing that I was wondering is why keepers of livestock, especially shepherds, were lonesome to the Egyptians. Kind of thing to me is growing up <laughs> being a cattle rancher. <laughs> you know, I can understand that today you might be a redneck cake or something. Yeah. In Egypt, I mean, that was a well, actually, uh, actually, from what I have read, uh, uh, Egypt uh, Egyptians did not eat a lot of meat. Apparently, they did, they did eat some. They weren't they weren't opposed to it. But it's kind of like in our culture today. We have certain people or classes of people in our culture that we depend on, that are vital to our functioning as a society. But we still look down on them. You know, the garbage collectors and the you know, and, and other people who do work for us that's absolutely essential, but for some reason, uh, lawyers, yeah. Well, their work isn't essential, so that's... That doesn't <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I, I was thinking about that last week. I was thinking, well, why would they have been loathsome? And, and when it comes down to it, our prejudices really never do have a really logical reason to them, do they? So... Later on, you find when Moses is getting Exodus that uh, the ten plagues, the plagues, each of the ten plagues were attached to the Egyptian gods. And I think the reason that they found a lot of the herders and such like that is because they considered those gods some of the animals. And so mm-hmm. the, uh, someone who is, I would think that if they considered them gods instead of them being loathsome, they might consider them like priests or something. Priests. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Apparently not. Yeah. That's, that's my understanding yeah. Of why. Yeah. But the dynamic there is that because uh, not just shepherds, but any keeper of livestock was considered loathsome to the Egyptians, the dynamic that's going on there is Joseph accentuates the fact that his family is uh, consists of shepherds and keepers of livestock. He he accentuates that to to Pharaoh, and he wants the family to accentuate that to family. To, to Pharaoh for the purpose of ensuring that the family lives separate from the Egyptians. So it's Joseph's way of protecting the family from the influence of the Egyptian culture. And, and one of the things we talked about is that, uh, so, so they have this, the, 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 the sons of Israel and the family, the children of Israel in Egypt, they have this dynamic going on where, where they are considered loathsome to the Egyptians, they're looked down on, so they're suffering under this prejudice, if you will, 
and then, of course, eventually they end up being slaves, and so there's even more prejudice against them. But these things that we would normally think of as being evil things to experience in our lives, prejudice and, and uh, other things like that, uh, we think of typically as being evil are the very things that God was using to keep the children of Israel holy and separate to Himself. And so it is in our lives. Oftentimes we experience ongoing, sometimes things that last for many, many years. Things that, we, that are difficult for us, that are an affliction to us, things that we chafe under. Even things that we may ask God over and over again to deliver us from, and He doesn't deliver us from them. And, and sometimes it's those very things that are keeping us close to the Lord or keeping us separate from the world. And uh, I think of Paul who, who had this, uh, uh, this affliction. We don't know exactly what it was, but it says he prayed three times that the Lord would remove it. And the Lord said, I'm not going to remove it because it's the thing that's keeping you humble. It's keeping you from exalting yourself. And so some of these things in my life or probably in your life too that we suffer through and we wonder why we have this ongoing suffering and God doesn't deliver us from it. And sometimes these things themselves provide for us a cause for unbelief or doubt or sin in some regard. And so we think, well, well, you know, why does God let this go on? Because it's such a struggle for me. But there's, we probably won't know until we get to heaven the greater sin that God has kept us from or protected us from or the greater temptation God has protected us from by allowing us to experience these ongoing things in our lives that we all, we all have. And so, so it's, it's comforting and it's encouraging to me to see that perspective and see what's going on here with the children of Israel. What else from last week? We talked a little bit, just to kind of prime the pump here a little bit. We talked a little bit last week about the words that the narrator uses, the Holy Spirit here uses through the narrator to refer to or to, dis- or to talk about this reunion between Joseph and Jacob. Do you remember what we said about that, the significance of that? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Uh, he he uses several words like when he says he uh, when he appeared before his father and and a couple other phrases that he used there are words that are used in other places in Genesis to refer to a theophany or to an appearance of God. Okay. And so it's like we have these two men, uh, Jake, uh, the father and son, Jacob and Joseph, and they're coming back together. But these are two men about whom the Scripture explicitly says God was present with them. And so we have these two men with whom God is present and they're coming together. And the narrator in describing this reunion of the father and the son, these two men with whom God is present, uses words that remind us of a theophany, that remind us of the appearing of God. And, uh, and, and we talked about the fact that you and I have, have the presence of, of God with us through the Holy Spirit and the tremendous benefits and promises of that. But, but oftentimes when we come together as believers, it's anything but a theophany. You know, oftentimes when believers come together, uh, interact together, there's conflict, there's disagreement, there's, there's jealousies, there's all kinds of things. Uh, but ideally, when believers come together, two people coming together in whom Christ dwells, it ought to be a it ought to be a display of God's glory and God's majesty and God's beauty, and that's what he what he would desire. And Jesus says that he says <clears throat> he says concerning his disciples that one of the ways that 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 we the world will know that we are followers of Christ is by our love for one another. So. Our interaction with other believers, even I think when we when we have differences of opinion on various things, our interactions as believers ought to reflect, I think, the glory and the majesty of God. And uh, oftentimes we fall short of that. Anything else? Well, even though they were outcasts or not outcasts, they ended up in the best place in the land. Mm-hmm. God was 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's pretty remarkable how all that happens. Uh, God's just gracious provision. You're going to say something here? But I think there was also you had the people who lived in the city versus the people who didn't, mm-hmm. and that there's a there's a social difference yeah. between yeah. people who and so having that land open is probably people preferred to live in the city, yeah. they just didn't want to live out there in the in the wilderness. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think God's timing in that was very provident. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of some of this issue of the prejudices that we talk about in our that we have in life and uh, and in our society, and oftentimes they're irrational. and And one person, one time, I remember, made the distinction that those uh, those men who shower before they go to work in the morning are esteemed more highly than those who shower when they come home. <laughs> you have to think about that for a minute. But there's an element of truth to that. I'm one of those who showers when I come home. <laughs> so, anyway. Well, let's pick up the story then in chapter 47. Uh, Joseph has prepared the family for meeting Pharaoh. And then in chapter 47, we have the actual uh, encounter uh, of Joseph and Pharaoh. Uh, and, excuse me, Jacob and Pharaoh. And uh, so let's begin in verse 1 and, and hopefully we'll get to look at the first 12 verses or so. It says, Then Joseph went in and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have have come out of the land of Canaan and behold, they are in the land of Goshen. He took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? So they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any capable men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Jacob, excuse me, Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many years have you lived? So Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my sojournings are 130, few and unpleasant have been the years of my life. Nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had ordered. Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food, according to their little ones. Well, uh, so now we have the actual encounter of the family with uh, Pharaoh. And uh, one of the themes that we pick up in the passage, and we'll talk about this some today, is this idea of sojourning. The the brothers talk about their... uh, Uh, being on a sojourn in the land of Egypt. They don't see themselves as permanently located there, but they see themselves uh, on a sojourn. Turns out the family, of course, spends 400 years there, which sounds not like a sojourn to me. But And then then we have the encounter of Jacob and Pharaoh. And uh, one of the things that's interesting about this encounter of Jacob and Pharaoh, and we'll get into this more today, is, is... uh, presumably, they talked about a lot of things, but, this, but the, the narrative only tells us one thing that they discussed. And it focuses just primarily on Jacob's response to one answer uh, or one question that Pharaoh had asked. And that's kind of an interesting point, too. But what it does for us is it, 
it gives this passage gives us, particularly the last half of the passage we're looking at today, and the part of the passage I'd like to focus on the most, gives us a, a really a moving portrait of this man Jacob. Uh, it's a very touching story uh, to me as I watch it, uh, and uh, and as I as I as I thought about it this week, I just found my heart drawn to this guy Jacob at this point in his life. So we'll those are some of the things we want to look at. But first, uh, the brothers come uh, uh, and they encounter Pharaoh and, and pretty much things unfold just the way Joseph had planned and the way he had told his brothers. He said, you're going to go to Pharaoh. I'm going to go first. I'm going to tell him your shepherds and, and, uh, and, uh, and then I'm going to bring you in and, and he will ask you what is your occupation and you're to tell him that you are shepherds or, or keepers of livestock. And uh, in the hopes that, that he will allow you to settle in the land of Goshen. And that, of course, is exactly the way things unfold, as we see in these first six verses of the chapter. He brings them in. Uh, uh, they are asked what their occupation is. And, uh, and, and they answer that they are shepherds. And they make a point, of course, of being, uh, being um, uh, on a sojourn in the land of Egypt. Uh, presumably, the idea there is to communicate to Pharaoh that they don't have any kind of uh, plans or intentions for taking over Egypt or or in, anything that would constitute a threat that Pharaoh would consider a threat uh, from the men. So that's part of what's going on there. Uh, <clears throat> but also, I was thinking just a little bit more on this idea of of them identifying themselves as shepherds. Uh, there's no, and, and we've already talked about this, of course, the, the, the intent of that is to, is to draw a distinct line between the children of Israel, the sons of Israel, and the Egyptians, so that there won't be the intermingling uh, and the pollution of, of the people that was, that was going on in Canaan before they came down into Egypt. So we've already talked about that a little bit, but one of the things that, that, uh, that struck me as I was thinking, I think I, this even just came to me this morning as I was thinking on the passage, is is that it's the it is the very open declaration of the sons of Israel we are shepherds that serves as a preventative for them ending up mingling with the Egyptians in other words by their open declaration the Egyptians now know okay these people are shepherds and we don't want to have anything to do with them and had they Concealed. I don't know how you conceal the fact that you're a shepherd, particularly when you have as many uh, sheep and cattle as, as the sons of Israel had. I don't know how you would conceal it. But, but if they had been able to conceal that, then they would have been able to mingle more and kind of blend in with the culture and kind of fit in with the culture. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking how... How our willingness to clearly identify who we are is, is one of the things that helps, helps us stay separate from the world. In other words, if, if I'm unwilling to fly the flag of a Christian, if I'm unwilling to identify myself publicly as a Christian, then it becomes very easy for me to just kind of compromise with the world. But when I raise the flag of Christ, when I identify myself as a follower of Christ, it does two things. One, it makes me more conscious of, of I am a Christian and I ought to live like a Christian. But it also puts the world on alert. And they go, this person's a Christian and we really don't want anything to do with them. <laughs> okay. Because we don't, you know, we, we really don't like the way Christians think. I, I, I was reading something just yesterday or the day before and, and, and somebody was, uh, Somebody was being very critical. It was a, some, someone was reading in the newspaper, magazine. Some, somebody was being very critical of someone who had taken a very moral and upright stand, and they were belittling it. They were writing writing about it from a very demeaning point of view, and it kind of irritated me. And I thought, good grief, this is you know, this is the way, you know, this is this is righteousness and goodness that we're talking about, and this person is writing about it as if. Uh, you know, as if this person is some kind of weirdo or something. <laughs> but that's the advantage that we have when we identify ourselves as Christians. The world looks at us as weirdos. 
right? And when they do that, that helps us maintain that kind of separation from the world that is so important to remaining true and faithful to the Lord. So, so all I'm saying here simply is that, is, is that by, by maintaining an open testimony as a Christian, by, by being very clear and open with people that I love the Lord and that I'm a Christian and that I adhere to the, the Scriptures and I follow the Scriptures, by making that very clear, it, just that declaration itself acts as a safeguard both in my own heart and on the part of the world's relationship with me that helps keep me separate from the world, helps me walk in a way that's more true and faithful to God. And so, so that's the whole point of the, of the sons of Israel here saying we are shepherds. Is it makes them conscious of what their job is and what their task is, but it also makes the world, the Egyptians, familiar. And the Egyptians are going to, okay, we're going to keep, kind of keep our distance from these people because these people are weird. So there is some, you know, as much as we chafe under it at times, there is some advantage to being thought of as weird when it comes to our faith and our, and our, and our following of, of Scripture, etc. So, yeah? Well, you, you think back to Lot. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, lots of good example. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's actually that's the story I was thinking about. Yeah, I, I couldn't remember what it was, but I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was being a Christian, and he was being portrayed as being weird, and you know, just by the way the article was written. Yeah, that was that. You did read the inside part. The guy had a great quote. I don't know what he called Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He had a great quote about, you know, you're kind of kicking off the city council, so what you're saying is you want everybody to think exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. The only tolerance here is for if you're exactly, exactly white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was just in the back of my, I couldn't remember the article. That was the article I was reading, yeah, so it's a good example. Yeah, great. Thanks for sharing that. Also, having straight, we and our fathers and primary youth, this is what we Always. Yeah, no, yeah. This, this is what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And and so it's it's very clear. This is a lifestyle that we live. And my fathers have lived this. Uh, Abraham and Isaac and and Jacob. And now we live this way. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay. Well, now we come to this kind of intriguing story of the interaction of Jacob and Pharaoh. So Joseph brings. Uh, Brings his father to see uh, to see Pharaoh and to present him to Pharaoh. And it is interesting that he separates these two presentations. There's the presentation of the family through the brothers, and then there's the presentation of Jacob. And these are apparently two different incidents. All right, and and I think perhaps one of the one of the reasons why Joseph does this in this way is because when the brothers come, what is their purpose in coming to Pharaoh? What do they want to achieve? Okay, they want Pharaoh to give them the land of Goshen, okay? So there's a real sense in which the brothers are coming hat in hand, right? <laughs> they're coming hat in hand to Pharaoh and they're wanting Pharaoh's goodness to them and Pharaoh's favor and, and they are wanting uh, Pharaoh to, uh, to give to them the land of Goshen in which to live, okay? But when Jacob comes, we have an entirely different scenario, Okay, and we'll explore this in some depth. But we have an entirely different scenario. And it's like Jacob doesn't want to create any image or excuse me. Joseph doesn't want to create any image or any impression of Jacob coming to Pharaoh hat in hand. Okay, Uh, he's not coming in that way at all. The purpose and the intent of Jacob's uh, presentation, the presentation of Jacob to Pharaoh and their interaction is entirely different. It is that Joseph wants 
Pharaoh to meet his father and to experience his father on an entirely different plane than he experiences Joseph's brothers. Okay, so they are separate and they come. uh, They come and we have this then this presentation. And and as I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, presumably in this time that Pharaoh and Jacob have together, they presumably talked about a number of different things. But in our record of the event, only one aspect of their conversation is recorded for us by the Holy Spirit. And that is this discussion about Jacob's age and what Jacob says about his age and about his life. Okay. So what is apparently important about this whole interaction between Jacob and Joseph was apparently important uh, on the, from the Lord that he wants us to take from this passage is... Joseph's perspective on himself that is disclosed to us in this passage. And this is, I think, is the only real kind of uh, description of Jacob's self-awareness. I keep using Jacob and Joseph. I keep interchanging the names. You, you guys are going to translate. When I say Joseph, I mean Jacob. You think Jacob, okay? Don't think Joseph, okay? So, uh, but this is the first... Uh, this is, a, to my knowledge, is really the first place where we really have some, uh, some picture of what Jacob's self-awareness is, how he thinks of himself and how he thinks of his life. And for some reason, the Holy Spirit thinks this is important for us to reflect on. Okay. So he comes in to Pharaoh and Pharaoh's first question to Jacob or the question that's recorded for us is what? How old are you? You know? Well, you know, it's a little strange. In our culture, we don't do this. You know, that's not the first thing we ask somebody when you meet them. Go, oh, how old are you? You know, that's, we don't do that in our culture. All right. Uh, but, but this is what, this is what Pharaoh does. Okay. Now, part of the reason is probably because at this point, Jacob is obviously very old. Okay. Now, we don't know how old Joseph is. Some uh, Bible students uh, speculate uh, that Pharaoh is at this point uh, fairly young, but we don't really know that for certain. But, uh, but he's apparently impressed by Jacob's age and he wants to know what it is. All right. Now, one of the reasons for that is because in the ancient Near Eastern cultures and in the patriarchal cultures, uh, age is looked at a lot different than it is today. Okay, today, we look at age, we look at old age as kind of a, uh, a misfortune <laughs> that happens to people. They get old, okay? We were joking about it here earlier in the class. And we, we, we tend in our culture to think, to think about old age and age and growing older. We, we tend to think about that as an unpleasant and difficult time of life. I had a customer who used to tell me repeatedly, growing old is not for weak, for weak people. <laughs> and there's a sense, of course, in which that is true. But that also is why older people are to be respected and honored. Because it isn't for weak people. It isn't for weaklings. It isn't for people without stamina and courage and strength. Okay? And, and so in those cultures, older people were really looked up to. They were admired and respected in a sense which I think in a sense that I think we have lost in our in our culture today or we are losing in our culture. But they were looked up to. And in fact, in the in in uh, particularly in the scriptures this is borne out that old age is a sign of God's blessing and God's favor on people. Okay? And and not only that, but in in the Mosaic law there are explicit commands to honor, to respect old people. Uh, in Leviticus, he says, basically, he says, you stand up for old people. You, when somebody, when somebody older comes in the room, you stand up and you honor them. This is part of the Mosaic law. Okay. So the idea is that, is that when someone has achieved old age, it's a sign that, that uh, it, is, it is at least one indicator, if not perhaps an exclusive indicator or even a necessary indicator, but it is one indicator of God's favor and God's blessing on a person's life that he has granted them these many years. And presumably, there are, of course, exceptions to this rule, but presumably when someone has lived a long life, 
They have gained some experience and some wisdom. There are some exceptions to that, of course. We could probably all point out one or two. But in general, when we think of somebody who's older, we think of somebody who has got a lot of experience under their belt and through that experience has gained wisdom. And it's wisdom and experience that we as younger people, uh, when we are younger, uh, can learn from. Okay, so so that's kind of part of the the dynamic that's going on here when Pharaoh asks Joseph, uh, excuse me, asks Jacob uh, what his age is. Okay, which is appears to be kind of the first question out of the box is is how old are you? But uh, actually, I got ahead of myself a little bit. As as Jacob comes into the presence of Pharaoh, what does he do? He blesses Pharaoh. Okay. And then we see in the next verse, uh, or a couple verses later, when he leaves, what does he do? He blesses him again. Okay. So here's an interesting thing. Because we look at these two men. And they're really... a study and contrast here. If we could if we could have been there in the royal court and watched this interaction, this is really a study of contrast. Because on the one part over here we have Pharaoh. This is one of the most powerful men, if not the most powerful man in all the world. Okay. He is sitting on the throne of Egypt. He is sitting on one of the thrones of this world. He is robed and clothed and adorned with all the beauty and the majesty of his office. He is surrounded by his advisors and his courtiers and his military men and his military might and his power and his pomp and his glory. Okay. You, can, you can just envision what this looks like when you come in to the throne room of Pharaoh. You know, it's, it must have been overwhelming. Just a picture of majesty and power and pomp and glory and all that sort of thing. And in our world today, we're really big about that, right? We like it. You know, whether it's our football teams or our presidents or our governors or whoever it is, we like to adorn the, the important people in our society with pomp and majesty and glory. And, you know, when, when the president comes walking into the room, they don't play the Blue Danube waltz, do they? What do they play? Hail to the chief. And we hear this martial music, this, this music that gives the idea of power and dynamism and that sort of thing. Okay? That's, that's the kind of aura that we have around the men and women of power and influence in our society and in our world today, as it was, of course, in the days of Pharaoh. And so we have, on the one hand, we have Pharaoh, who is this majestic uh, uh, figure sitting upon his throne, uh, a man who is wealthy beyond imagination and, and, of course, is completely secure, even in these very difficult circumstances of this great famine that has plagued his land. He is secure. On the other hand, over here, we have Jacob. And Jacob is a refugee. <laughs> he has come from a land of famine because he could not support his family. And he's come to Egypt to find some way to keep his family alive. And he's a shepherd. He's loathsome to the Egyptians. But even apart from that, this is a guy that lives by getting his hands and his feet muddy. Right? There's no pomp with Jacob. There's no majesty with Jacob. There's, there's, you know, I'm sure he was cleanly, nicely dressed, but there's not, there's not the robes and the, the attire of, of, of someone of majestic power and influence like Pharaoh. He's just dressed as a simple nomad from Canaan. Now, of course, we know that Jacob was wealthy in his own right and compared to the other people of Canaan, he was a very wealthy man, but compared to Pharaoh, he probably couldn't light a candle. Okay, But we have this very simple shepherd man, this rancher from Canaan who is a refugee, and he comes in to the presence of Pharaoh 
as a needy man. Apparently a needy man. But what's the first thing he does? He blesses him. And suddenly we see this stark contrast turned on its head. Because what does the book of Hebrews tell us about the one who blesses another? The greater blesses the lesser. The book of Hebrews says, surely, certainly, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And so Jacob comes into this audience with Pharaoh and he's and he sees all this glory and all this pomp and all this majesty and all the advisors and all, all and it's just little old Jacob coming in with his son and he comes into the presence of Pharaoh, but he comes in knowing that he is a prophet of God. And he comes in knowing that he is the blessing bearer. And he comes in knowing that although this man is sitting up here on his throne and he has all these things to his advantage, that Jacob has the greater advantage. Because he is a man who walks in the presence of God and whom God has blessed and who himself carries that blessing and who himself is given the responsibility by God to dispense that blessing to others. We are going to talk about that. He would say, "Your God has been with me. I've done all these things for me, and therefore I'm able to bless you." And he turns right around and says, "You know, and it's really not even totally true what he says. It's almost like a whiny attitude." Well, I don't know. It's um, (laughs) we'll get into this. Yeah, yeah. He has had hard times, but God has also blessed him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's also relatively old compared to yeah. Yeah. Well, let's look at that then, because that is the question that comes up, and we want to address that a little bit here this morning. Uh, so he comes in, and he comes in giving this blessing, and then he's asked his age for the reasons that we've talked about, because I got ahead of myself, and then we have uh, Jacob's answer, and he says, "The years of my sojourn have been one hundred and thirty." Few and unpleasant have been the days of my life. Nor have they attained the days or the years, excuse me, that my fathers attained in the days of their sojourning. And so we have this seemingly very pessimistic view of life. But I would suggest to you it's not as pessimistic as it appears. First off, he begins his life by describing it as what? A what? As a sojourn. Now, from the outset, that seems like maybe a little bit of a pessimistic way to look at your life. But in reality, that is a disposition of faith, is it not? When a man describes his life as a sojourn, as Abraham or Isaac or Jacob... The book of Hebrews tells us very clearly that's the perspective of faith. Go over to Hebrews chapter 11, just uh, as by way of reminder here. Um, In that great chapter on faith, uh, there are some some encouraging things that are said both about Abraham and then about all the patriarchs. But speaking about Abraham in verse nine, it says, by faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise. As in a foreign land. Okay, so he's in the land of Canaan. Abraham's in the land of Canaan. He lives there for a hundred years. He lives in the land of Canaan as though it is a foreign land, even though God has promised him this land. God has said, I'm going to give this land to you and to your descendants after you. But, but in Abraham's experience for a hundred years, it's always a foreign land. Okay. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Why? 
For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And so Abraham lives for a hundred years after his arrival in Canaan. He lives for another hundred years. And the entire time he lives as a stranger, as an alien. And the reason is because he and his son and his grandson after him were looking for something else. They were not really looking for this land. They were looking for a city whose architect and builder was God. And then we go down in verse 13. He says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. So when Jacob, before Pharaoh, refers to himself refers to his life as a sojourn, this is what he's expressing. That he is a stranger and he's an exile. Not in Canaan, not in Egypt, but on the earth. That they are strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And so when Joseph says to, or excuse me, when Jacob says to Pharaoh, I, this, this life of mine is a sojourn, when he said that, Hebrews 11.14 says, he's making it clear that he is seeking a country of his own. And it's not here in Canaan, and it's not here in Egypt. So, from the very outset of Jacob's reply to Pharaoh, from the very outset, is the expression of a man of faith. This is a sojourn. This is not my home. My life is about something beyond here. And, and so he goes on in Hebrews and he says, And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And I'm just thinking, okay, here's Jacob, and he's in front of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's this majestic, you know, you know, the whole scene we just painted, okay? And here's Jacob in front of him. And he says, my life is a sojourn. And when he says that, what he's making clear is that he's looking for a city whose architect and builder is God. And he's looking for a country of his own. And because that is his disposition, as he stands before this great majestic man of the world, it says God is not ashamed to be called his God. But there's something else in that passage in Hebrew that strikes me as it says, if they had been thinking of the country that they had come from, what? They would have had what? An opportunity to return. You see, when we lose sight of the fact that our life is a sojourn and that we are looking for a country that is our own, <laughs> And for a city whose architect and builder is God. When we lose sight of that, what do we find we get? Opportunities in the world. To sink our roots down into the world and to love the world and live as though the world were our home. But people of faith never seize those opportunities because they are looking for a city whose architect and builder is God and for a country that is their own. And so the first thing that strikes me about Jacob here before Pharaoh, whatever else he says and whatever else we think about what he says, is he is speaking it from the disposition of a man of faith. My life is a sojourn, as was the life of my fathers before me. Notice he describes Isaac and Abraham's lives also as a sojourn. And then he describes his life in the terms that, that Mike was pointing out to us. He says, few and unpleasant, or actually the word there might be better translated evil. Few and evil are the days of my sojourn. Now, here's a guy who's 130 years old and most of us think, well, you know, <laughs> it doesn't sound like a few days to me. But when we remember that Abraham lived to be 175 
And Isaac, his father, lived to be 180. 130 doesn't seem like that many years. And at this point, Jacob's ready to die. Remember, that's what we looked at last week. He'd said to his father, okay, he said to his son, when he met his son and saw his son was alive, okay, now I'm ready to die, okay, because I've seen your face, I've seen that you're still alive, so now I'm ready. So at 130, he's ready to die. In reality, as we talked about last week, he lives for another 17 years. But even at that, he dies at the age of 147. 28 years less than Abraham and 33 years less than his father before him. So he says few. In comparison, he's thinking of Abraham and Isaac. He's comparing himself to his father and his grandfather before him. And he says few have been the years of my sojourning compared to them. But he says they've also been evil. Now, Mike is right. The guy has a lot of blessings in his life. I mean, how many of us have had an opportunity to physically wrestle with God and come away having won? Okay. Admittedly with a limp, but at least he won. Okay. Okay. How many of us have had 12 sons? Well, I don't know. We might not think of that as a blessing, but, it, but uh, clearly Jacob thought of that as a blessing. Okay. Uh, so he, he clearly has many blessings in his life. But on the other hand, Think about his life. Think about his life. Here's a guy who grew up his whole life chafing under the fact that he was the second born by moments and resenting his brother Esau. And then we have a a man who has spent years because of his deception and his trickery and his lying and stuff ends up spending years in exile away from his home and his family. Cannot see his mother. Doesn't see his mother die. Can't see his father. uh, Alienated from his brother. He spends 20 years in a tug of war with his employer, Laban, in Padenera. Then he has to flee from the threat of Laban into the threat of Esau. And that all gets worked out. And then he goes over to Shechem. And in Shechem, his two of his sons commit a horrific, murderous deed that brings down on Jacob's head the hatred of all the people of the region. So he leaves from there and he heads south towards, eventually heads south towards home. And on his way south, his beloved wife dies, giving birth to his twelfth son. And then in that same time period, his oldest son sleeps with one of his concubines. Then he finally gets back home to dad, to Isaac, at Beersheba, uh, or at the Oaks of Marm, wherever he was. He gets back to his father, and within... Two or three years, Joseph disappears and is assumed dead. And so he lives now, the wife that he loved, the firstborn son of the wife that he loved, are both dead, as far as he knows. And he lives the next 20-some years with that mentality. And then there's famine in the land that drives him out of the land of promise. So... I'm going to give him a little slack when he says, my, the days of my sojourn have been evil. This is a guy who has suffered. Now, much that he has suffered has been self-inflicted, right? <laughs> but much that he suffered was not self-inflicted. It's just the circumstances of life. Now, this is, this is really striking to me that, that this man of faith upon whom is the clear blessing of God, has this perspective on his life that, it doesn't, that his life does not seem to have the, the favor on it that his grandfather and his father had on their lives. Because he's clearly not going to live as long as his father and grandfather before him. And that his life has been plagued with evil 
things all the way through, just one after another. Any one of these crises that we've talked about in the life of Jacob might have derailed any one of us. But he has not one or two of these, but repeated one after another. And, and this perspective on the life of Jacob is particularly stark when we compare it against the perspective of Abraham's life. Flip back to chapter 25 when Abraham dies and look at what it says about Abraham. In chapter 25 and verse 8, it says, Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life. And he was gathered to his people. So I read this description of Abraham where it says he died an old age, a ripe old age, and satisfied with life. And I, and I lay that description of, of Abraham against this self-description of Jacob's life. Few and unpleasant have been, or few and evil have been the days of my life. And I'm going, what a contrast. And... It's very easy at this point to say, well, Jacob, you brought it on yourself. And much of it he did. But after Jacob gives this assessment of his life, what is the next thing he does in that verse? He blesses Pharaoh. <laughs> you know, and we start getting this disconnect that Mike's talking about. And I'm going, what are you trying to tell us here, God? Now, now it is true that, that Jacob's perspective here is a bit pessimistic. Okay, I'll allow that. I think it's a bit pessimistic. Because Jacob is a guy who has had God with him all along. And with all that he suffered, now he has the joy and the pleasure of seeing Joseph in this exalted position and taking care of the family and... And, and, and he has 12 sons. You know, think about what Abraham went through just to have one son. And here's Jacob and he's got 12 sons. So he has much blessing in his life. But he has also had much trouble, much more trouble than Abraham had and much more trouble than, Jacob, or than, than Isaac had. Okay? So he's had much trouble in his life. Much of it self-inflicted and some of it not self-inflicted. But the striking thing is... What is, you know, when we compare, when we compare this portrayal of Abraham and this portrayal of Jacob and we see this stark contrast between them, it's important to remember what they have in common and what is it they have in common. God's blessing. They, both, they have the same blessing. The blessing that was given to Abraham is passed on to Isaac, is passed on to Jacob. And in fact, it was Jacob's craving for that blessing that led to some of his trouble. Right? It's because he was unwilling to wait in patience upon God to provide him with that blessing. And so he reached out and grabbed it by the arm of the tried to grab it by the arm of the flesh. I don't think he succeeded. But he tried to grab it by the arm of the flesh. And that is what brought on him much of the trouble that he experiences in life. But ultimately, he does get the blessing of God. Ultimately, he does receive God's blessing. He receives the same blessing that Abraham had. And because he has this same blessing that Abraham had, this simple shepherd man with muddy feet is able to walk into the palace and, and into the throne room of Pharaoh and be in the superior position and twice, within a few minutes, give a blessing to Pharaoh. And what strikes me about this is that any one of us, in our worst condition, are more blessed and more privileged than the greatest, most powerful people 
richest, wealthiest, most influential people in all the world. You and I, sitting here in this little Sunday school classroom, dressed in our casual clothes, doing our menial, casual, little insignificant jobs that you and I do, are more blessed and more privileged and more honored than the greatest people in the world who do not know Christ. Rick, I just, uh, I agree with all that. I'm just thinking, you know, the person, uh, you know, a, a Christian person who, when you talk to them, they're always got the hang dog for me and life. And you don't go away feeling blessed. You go away depressed. Whereas most Christians, just, you know, I, I know people who have had lives like this or worse. And their testimony is, yes, it's been hard, but God has always been faithful. And yeah. God has blessed me. And the, yeah. You know, and you expect him to say this, especially if he's about to bless somebody or yeah. he's just blessed somebody. Yeah. And we don't have a whole conversation. Yeah. This, That's right. This ironic. Yeah. Strikes me. He gets this negative perspective rather than saying, expecting to say, and, and God, but God has really been faithful in the blessings of outweigh and all these, but he doesn't. Maybe he did when he blessed the guy. But he, he yeah, Gary? It strikes me that he, he uh, blessed him, that he said this, and then he blessed him again. It's almost like he's saying, this was my lot in mind. But God had, God, it's not the same for everybody. I, I wish you better. I wish, I wish you all the better. Okay, I, I, think that's, I think that's kind of point. In other words, I think, Mike, it seems to me that, that he is saying what you wish he'd say. That by blessing Pharaoh, he's saying, with all of this about my life that's true, I have something I can give to you. I can give to you the blessing of God. But it's not a blessing of this world. Because, because Abraham's blessing and Isaac's blessing and Jacob's blessing, as we saw, was not in this life. Because if it was in this life, they would have had an opportunity to return. But they didn't return to it. And so I think what Jacob is saying is, is you can have... You can have Abraham's life or you can have my life and both of us are blessed of God because, because our true blessing is not here in this life. It is over there. And so in one sense, I think he is saying what you're saying. And, but he's not in, 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 in decreeing the blessing of God in being the blessing bearer here. He's not saying, I'm blessing you because I'm wealthy or I'm rich or I've, you know, God has prospered me or God has taken care of me. I actually, if I were honest with you, I'd have to tell you I've had a lot of trouble in life. But I have something to give to you that you do not have. Yeah, Robert? I have a question. I mean, what exactly does when we say he blessed you? I don't know. What does that mean? Well, I think uh, we don't, as you say, we don't know because it doesn't tell us. And and the the uh, the idea of blessing somebody can carry two significantly different meanings. Okay, and we don't know which it is in this case. Later in, uh, in Genesis, we will see Jacob blessing his sons, and, it comes, and it's essentially a prophecy. He's prophesying about each one of his sons. So in that case, he's telling them, this is what's going to happen in your life. In other cases, a blessing is simply a desire or a wish or a prayer, as you expressed it, for happiness. The word blessing means to be happy. Okay? So we don't know in this case with Pharaoh what it is. We do know that Pharaoh comes out of this whole situation with the famine, uh, much better off than he went into it. And that may be a product of the blessing of Jacob on his life. But So we don't know specifically what he said, uh, but what is significant to me is we've talked all the way through this passage, or I mean through Genesis, we have talked since we picked up the story of Abraham, we have talked about the significance of being the blessing bearer, the one who carries the blessing. And the idea is that we carry the blessing for what purpose? In order that all the nations of the earth might be blessed. And so you and I, whatever the circumstances of our life, whether the circumstances of our life are like Abraham or the circumstances of our life are like Jacob, we carry a blessing. And that blessing we are responsible to give and to distribute freely 
to others. And that's what we see him doing. Okay, well, we're way over time, so we'll have to cut it off here. But you guys are asking good questions. Yeah. Humility, I would say. Yes. Yeah. 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 And I think Jacob's story here is a refutation of the whole wealth, wealth and prosperity gospel. I think it, and this is carrying on from the point that you made there. But yes. I think it's good to show you my I guess you couldn't find good help in those days. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that was the blessing you'd find some good help. <laughs>